Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always are my co-host, Drew. Say hi. Oh, hi. And Aaron. Say hi. Hello there. Hello. Right. Well, what have you two been up to this week then? What travels, what fun have you been uh, undertaking? I've just got back from Australia. Have you? Because yeah, you were at my I, house um, this afternoon, and that's that's a very quick trip if you manage that one. It was a very quick trick. But, but in that time, I managed to learn some Aboriginal. Like okay. The word, <laughs> the word boo. You Boot. know what boo means? Boo. Well, boo? No, yeah. because there's something like over 600 different dialects, and uh, I didn't well, learn to speak any of them. Well, boo's a very easy word, and it means to return. Ah. Because when you throw an ordinary meringue... Oh, God. <laughs> well, there you go. That's that's the calibre of joke that we're at already. I'm already I just say for legal reasons. For, for legal story. reasons, that is not my original joke. Well, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to want to claim up to that one. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's not an Aboriginal joke? I don't think it is. Yeah. No, I think it's uh, Milton... Something or other. He was on Have I Got News for You. Oh, years right. Ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Milton Jones. <laughs> I see. Stealing yeah. jokes today. <laughs> Stealing jokes, yeah. Stealing jokes. We stole the podcast from Kanye West last week. So, oh, uh, well, that's true. Uh, yeah, have that... you been out and about doing anything? Um, no, actually. We've, it's been a bit manic this week. Um, I am working on something for the podcast, but um, which I alluded to last week too. But I'm not going to tell anyone what it is until it's, Giant until it's in a laser until mm. I can show you guys it in its completed form. And then I'll, uh, and then maybe people will understand. I'm picturing you tinkering away in your shed and all sorts of random noises coming out of it. <clears throat> I'll tell you what I did receive today from my, um, day from my step, my stepmom's father. It was, um, it, it was some honey from his own bees. Mm, that's good. I've, I've got it in my hot drink now. Always like a bit of local nice. honey. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Drew, what have you been up to? Uh, again, there's not a huge amount uh, I have to say, but I do have a very quick little story from my partner, um, and some of it she did this week or got up to this week uh, at the place that she works. Uh, there was a gentleman, um, sort of like caretaker, who was doing the old classic at this time of year raking up those leaves oh dear because before humans came along obviously leaves just they just built up and built up that's what ended many 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 species <laughs> they just died well, from the mammoths over, mammoths just leaf exposure yeah mammoths just yeah, got completely just, covered in leaves so it's, it's a good job that we came along and invented rakes um but he was putting the leaves in black bags and then they were going to be incinerated Oh, oh my goodness! I don't even understand the mentality. It's it's insane. Um, the but, mentality um, is he got told to do that by someone, and he didn't think yeah, for yeah. himself. And that someone basically not anywhere he could have just what they should be doing. I mean, if, even even just to please the powers that be that have you know their lawn kept pleasant um, in their own mind, 
isn't there any way he could have just gone and dumped the leaves and at least then they'd have rotted? Uh, yeah, so but so Jess actually had a suggestion for the man of where he could put the leaves, and this isn't going to end where you think it might end. <laughs> I've got a suggestion uh, for you. <laughs> I could tell you where you could put those. Um, she basically suggested to put, to put them uh, to put them in a uh, an in, an enclosure because she works with animals. Well, uh, I mean, put them in an enclosure with some animals that would enjoy running around in those leaves. And he said, "Oh, yeah, actually, that's quite a good idea." Uh, were they going to incinerate? Method. Were they going to incinerate the black bags as well? I don't know, because that's just even worse. I, I can't. I can't answer that one uh, for because I don't know. Ah <laughs> oh, well, there you go. That's I don't um, be liable. Well, hopefully, hopefully that's changed some opinions and might get him thinking. Well, hopefully so. Might have hopefully got him. So. I mean, more more will drop. That's the thing. Oh, with, well, um, definitely. With autumn, more leaves will come down. <laughs> uh, what do we do with them? It's it's absolute madness this time of year. What I mean, what do we do? It's just could chaos. Just, could just leave them. Could be lazy. No, you can't do that. <laughs> You cannot do that. I've just said to manicure. Countless species went extinct due to leaves on the line. Leaf leaf addiction and surely they could even put it around tree roots and protect the tree's roots from the frost. They'll kill the they'll kill the trees there. That's why they drop the leaves. They don't want them anymore. Yeah. They don't (laughs) want the leaves anymore. They want them removed. (laughs) Get them off me. (laughs) Well, there you go. There we go. I think that got that got a good good amount of airtime from that story. Yeah. Um, do you want to know what what fun I've been up to uh, this week? Uh, sure. I mean, not a huge amount, to be honest, other than oh. A, Started well. repairing the greenhouse that I built the other week. Because oh, yeah. the storm that we had decided to punch out more than a few of the panels. So mm-hmm. I've got to repair that. Uh, first off, I had to go and find all the panels, which had decided to go disappearing into the wood behind the house. Luckily, the tree cover is quite thick, so they sort of got lodged. After getting those back, did actually manage to have a really, really good bit of conservation work that I got my students involved with that, in fact, was so successful, I had to actually kick them out of the class at the end because I had to get to another class afterwards. Normally, the moment they see that sort of clock tick anywhere close to when they could you know conceivably leave they're packing stuff in their bags and then getting ready to run out the door this time i had to kick them out i'd say guys i've, I've got to go I've, I've got to get you know to the next class you're gonna to have to do this another time essentially what we uh got shown is and in fact i i put up last week um facebook post of two of the things that we managed to find on mammal web which is a citizen science a website where a variety of different camera traps, a series of images are put up for people to look through and classify the different animals that are there. The project that I decided for our, our class to look at was the Scottish wildcat um, web or cameras uh, up in the Cairngorms in Scotland. And essentially we had a, an entire computer rooms. It, it felt a bit like sort of CIA gchq sort of thing you know i'm walking <laughs> around the room they're all clicking images and and going i've got one over here i've got one over, you know and we're just sort of like okay what have we got let's analyze yeah, the image even said enhance a few times to which they were <laughs> engage went, just, yeah make make the image bigger oh okay why'd you say that because it sounds cool <laughs> but um we found loads of scottish wildcats 
uh, pine martins. Almost every third image was mm. a pine martin, which is really, wow, really good. Nice. Um, there were jays, yeah, buzzards, loads of sheep, <laughs> just sort of wandering in front of some of these camera traps. That's the... less good. Less good. Well, but... I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these camera traps appear to be on the edge of like farmland and and mm. um, you know were set up on fence posts on the edge of forested areas. So you, you, there was always going to be a mixture. There were even some domestic dogs uh, that just seemed to be like trailing through the area that people are walking their dogs. But yeah, it was it was a good a good mixture of things. We found some some really good stuff in there. Badgers, loads of house mouse, deers, um, wood mouse, you name it, you know, loads of different species. And I'm fairly certain we found a golden eagle as well. Um, but mm. the image was was like really fuzzy. I mean, some of the camera traps were very, very fuzzy. And obviously it's daytime and nighttime images. This was a, a first mm. thing in the morning image. It was basically the rear end of a golden eagle, so it was very hard to tell whether it was golden eagle or a buzzard up close. So, but yeah, I know that rear end anyway. <laughs> I would highly recommend it to anyone. You don't have to be in Scotland, obviously, to do this. You can go to Mammal Web, log in, you create yourself a username, and then you can click through all the different camera trap like uh, images and and pick. Well, basically, help to add data to it. So I, I went and did one of the other ones um, looking at camera traps on the Iberian Peninsula. Um, didn't see very much on those ones because uh, some of the options it gave you for what you were looking at were things like bears, wolves, you know, lynx. Mm -hmm. Most I think I saw was a pigeon on some of those camera traps. They were a bit, uh, bit more dull than the Scottish ones. Um, so uh, yeah, it's a really good, really good site to go to. And I would highly encourage anyone to go and check that out just purely just say that which which one was it again which website was it again it's called mammal web mammal web yeah mammal web it it reminds me very much of that space one that was out a couple of years ago where they were trying to get people to uh, search through uh, a variety of different images of uh planets and in different constellations looking for any differences and then you know people can report it your your reporting of it basically helps um further that field and mm. well i mean it, it's cheeky in the sense of you know the scientists aren't having to do the individual work but they are still taking that data and then turning it into you know useful conservation action or or, or whatever so yeah mm. that was really good and and hopefully they'll uh, be able to get some interesting results from it right well let's head on into the news then shall we yes good decisive Right, well, we're into this week's news, and Drew is going to start us off by taking us down to the pond. What have we got, Drew? Uh, I have good frog news this week. Which is um, the best kind of frog news. Perhaps well, it. I mean, it's the best sort of news, I think. Mm. Uh, full stop. Um, I do say this week, it is actually a few weeks old, and that's purely because we've had other stuff get in the way, and I haven't been able to cover this one, but I've, I, I saved it. I saved it, and it's 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 time it's time to shine a light on it uh, so the article is uh, conservation explosion in frog numbers after mass pond digging uh, so this uh, this pond digging is occurring in the canton of argau in northern switzerland i did double check a pronunciation 
thing on how you pronounce that because it's got uh, three A's in it. Um, it's a lot of A's for a short word to have, and there's uh, a lot of A's. <laughs> there, the uh, the first pronunciation I got of that was Argon. It was really quite aggressive, <laughs> and um, I found another one. Uh, which said it was Argyle. So we'll, we'll, we'll kind of continue with the less aggressive version of that name um, out of respect for the people there, who I'm sure are lovely. So the article says, Switzerland has reversed the decline of more than half of endangered frogs, toads, and newts in one region. Uh, so the European tree frog population in particular exploded, scientists say, and they hope this method could be used globally as pond building is simple and very effective. So globally, amphibian populations are in significant decline. Uh, we know this, so, you know, I'm sure everyone listening knows this as well, due to factors including habitat loss, urbanization, road infrastructure, disease, and invasive species. And sometimes people don't care about amphibians, and that's sad. Uh, but in 1999, which is oh, what a long time ago, um, Argal decided that a mass conservation effort was needed to combat the loss of amphibians. So the European tree frog in particular was a um, was a concern. So state authorities, non-profit organizations, private landowners, and hundreds of volunteers worked for 20 years to build 422 ponds in five regions of Argyle. It's a lot of ponds. Uh, older ponds were no longer suitable. So uh, by creating new ponds, the conservationists gave the species more space and better requirements to thrive. Um, of the eight endangered species, 52% increased their regional population and 32% were stabilised. So lead author of the study, Dr. Helen Moore, told BBC News that she was, uh, which is where I got this article from, uh, that she was excited to see such a clear increase in numbers considering the simplicity of the solution. Species will come. Uh, they will settle and start using the space if you offer it to them, she said. One species that dramatically increased, uh, as we mentioned previously, was the European tree frog, which uh, I think is a species that doesn't really get enough of a look in when it comes to uh, to tree frogs. There's a lot of very, very yeah, they are. There's a lot of very sort of famous, very notable tree frogs that a lot of people are very familiar with. Um, and the the European tree frog, which is very modest, really, it's pretty, but it is modest. I, I think it meets them all uh, on its uh, on its appearance. But anyway. Dr. Moore explains that the European tree frog is one of the most mobile species of frog, jumping from shrubs to trees, and it needs a very specific habitat to thrive, preferring shallow ponds created by meandering rivers on floodplains. However, this kind of habitat has disappeared in many places in Switzerland, uh, leading to the tree frog's decline. So Dr. Moore further explains that Switzerland has a high population density, like the UK, with a large road and rail networks, and much of the non-urban land is intensely farmed. So yeah, very much like us. Um, and she said, habitat loss is one of the main problems. And just by addressing that, we could see the difference it made and begin the recovery of these species. And finally, the article says uh, that over 20 years, the regional population of the European tree frog quadrupled in one area. It could only be found at 16 sites in 1999, but in 2019, the species was living in, uh, in 77 sites. Um, and the overwhelming regional increase in almost every pond breeding amphibian species proves how successful habitat creation can be. And Dr. Moore finishes by saying um, the key message is that it pays to do something, even if it feels overwhelming. So, yeah, that was the article. I, I just want to quickly ask you a question, Gareth, because I know uh -huh. you've um, I've I've never been I've never been in a news article before. I've never been interviewed. It's a, <coughs> a shame. 
Um, I'm waiting for my time. I'm waiting for my moment. Um, yeah. But you, you have. Oh, they got yeah, your name. The grand, grand total of twice. Whoa! Oh, twice. Do you Do not they... remember? I had the the local. I, I remember one of them. Journal, and then oh, yeah. the Daily Mail. You know. Oh, so it was over the same thing, but it was the same know, thing. But yeah, yeah. I see. Um, no guesses as to which one you preferred, but um, <laughs> and which one. Which one has the uh, all the information I stated completely and utterly factually inaccurate and even mislabeled the picture of me wrong? Yeah, exactly. You were you were a different <laughs> a different man in that article. Um, but do do they ask you? Because so many articles like this, again, it's very good news. I don't want to take away from that. But very uh, lots of articles like this, they always sort to of finish with like a quote that go, "Can you just say something that's quite profound that might make people." What people think? Can you just dig your brains for something? <laughs> did they do? Did they do that to you? Did the Daily Mail ask you that? Oh, Gareth, I'm gonna. You, I, it was a long time ago. Profound. But I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say I can't fully remember. But it. Well, if I do remember, I think the Daily Mail asked me, "Can I say something about illegal immigrants, or you know, should we have a blue passport, or something along those lines?" Yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> why? Why was this spider coming into the country illegally? That something like that. You know. Yeah. Basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I actually have a question for you, Drew. Out of oh, yeah. out of that entire article, uh, it's a little bit mm. let down actually. If they're they're basically building these ponds, you know, which seems like mm-hmm. a really simple idea, yeah, uh, and a really useful idea. Yep. Why didn't they use the quote? If you build it, they will come. <laughs> well, they sort of, right they there. sort of did. They so sort of close. did. Yeah, well, I know. Because what they they did, but not in that not. They said, That's what I mean. Uh, They're not using the quote. That's it's a little bit of a letdown. It's an obvious, said, obvious yeah, reference. They said species will come if they settle and start using the space if you offer it to them, which is which is basically a very long-winded way of saying if you build, you build it, it will they will come. Yeah. Fill the I mean, dreams. They, yeah. Well, this this is the this is the sort of profound things, isn't it? Because if you said that at the end of an article, everyone would be like, ah, oh, this guy's just ripping off <laughs> ripping off stuff. So you have to say something similar, but you know, change the words <laughs> up a bit. Copy, copy the homework. Copy my homework, but just uh, you know, yeah, just, just change move it. The, move the words around a little bit. Change it around a bit. Well, fair enough. I don't want to take away from the article because it is great news. No, it's good. I it's asked, good. and I think we should be doing the same in the UK. Is is increasing the number of ponds? Because um, it's not just frogs yep. that benefit. It's it's everything else. Well, the, I asked yeah. Drew out of recording. If if he knew of any specific methodology they used other than the other than the digging and uh, preparing of those, how many ponds was it? Four hundred twenty-two, I think. Four hundred twenty-two ponds, and and obviously they they've encouraged the environment around it to to regrow and 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 support that. But I was wondering about it here, and I had to Google it just quickly to find out if they do have the species there. But I wonder. In mankind, in he- humans doing these things, mm-hmm. but also perhaps encouraging things like beavers, which are both native to Switzerland and to yeah. the UK, encouraging them in in the in the river systems and stuff. Because when they build their dams, they create ponds in themselves, which again encourage amphibians and all manner of other life. Um, sure. Yep. So I just, I, I just wondered if there was anything attached, but when I looked, there was nothing really uh, kind of connected well, or related. But I think it's the, worth looking at. Yeah, mm. yeah. Again, bear in mind, it is just 
it's just BBC News. It's quite a short article. They didn't go into much detail mm. into the uh, yeah into other. I mean, this is good. If this has been going on since nineteen ninety nine, I imagine there's been quite um, there's, there's been amount of work, quite involved. Yeah. It's quite yeah. involved. Yeah, and that's yeah. a lot of pot, a lot of ponds being dug. So um, yeah, yeah, I imagine there's some more stuff here that the article basically skims across because to be fair, I BBC people aren't interested for all, for all their flaws. BBC can be quite good sometimes in giving bite-sized articles when to introduce people to an idea. Yeah, um, mm. whether or not that's the case here, I don't know. Maybe they're just being short and vague because they're not they're not interested. But no, you you are probably right. That's probably I'm, I'm, I might not be. I might be Let, being unfair. Let's go from <laughs> Switzerland, shall we? And and good frog news to um, mm. uh, yeah, Colorado and good spider news. Because, mm. uh, well, good. I mean, let, let's face it, it's that time of the year. I have had, in fact, I have had about five people within the last week sending me unsolicited spider pictures, um, which <laughs> it's the usual thing Classic. of what's this Classic. spider? It was in my house. Um, was it me? Was I one of them? You're actually one of was them. Was that last yeah. week? Yeah, that was, yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. You're one of I the did. five. I had one just yeah. this evening as well. So I've had, I've had about five in the last week. Of people going, what's this spider? Mm. Um, it's that time of the year where we've got spiders coming in the house and we think we've got big spiders. Um, you know, you, you ask anyone, they go, it was the size of our house. It was huge. It would yeah. have made, you know, Shelob look tiny. But um, let's go to Colorado. Gareth's number is, by the way, Gareth's number is 0800 555 spiders. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you want to send any <laughs> unsolicited spider pictures to him. Oh god! <laughs> oh, there's worse things, I suppose, you could yeah. be sent. But um, watch our emails. It should be. It should be <laughs> We go to uh, to Colorado to specifically La Junta, which is a very um, Spanish-sounding name for a for a town in Colorado. But we are we're we're going there to basically meet the U.S. town where tarantulas roam, uh, hoping to trap tourists. Now this isn't the uh, sort of tagline for some sort of B horror film um eight legged freaks would be the uh, the the prime example which for a for a cheesy horror film it knows that it's a cheesy horror film and i think that's mm-hmm. what makes it such a good film um spidernado <laughs> yeah i could see that working um this is Web- from webnado this actually got sent in to us uh by my fat fox on twitter so thank you very much for sending this article. It is very much uh, up our street um, for uh, the sort of stuff we would talk about. And it's also given me an idea for somewhere to go on uh, a future holiday. Why not? Sounds actually quite interesting. So during mating season, thousands of spiders, commonly known as the Oklahoma or Texas brown tarantula, which after looking up what the scientific name for that particular one is, that genus of tarantulas, uh, a phona pelma, is is one of my favorite uh, groups of tarantulas. And in fact, you guys worked with one as well. We previously had one um, where we were. Uh, it was it was another member of the Afona Pelmas. It was the um, the blood leg tarantulas that we had. Lovely little things. They may mean nothing to you because I know you guys didn't work with them anywhere near as much as I did. But a really nice group of tarantulas that come from uh, Central South America as well as uh, North America, but mostly desert living uh, species, mm-hmm. so most of them are brown, um, hence the uh, 
the Texas brown tarantula is the uh, the name for them. But the tarantulas uh, are well live in and around the uh, this little town of La Junta. Uh, and the tarantula it's being dubbed the tarantula capital of the world. Uh, it's perhaps not a title many towns would want to vie for uh, in an effort to attract tourists. Yet the city of La Junta is hoping to become a must-visit destination for fans of spiders, which, by the sounds of it, is yeah, it's already got my interest. Um, Spider each- fans. Yeah, I, 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 I would bet that there's at least one or two people walking around in Spider-Man costumes. So each autumn, hordes of tarantulas leave their burrows and roam the prairies uh, of southeastern Colorado in search of a mate, bringing wildlife enthusiasts out in force. Uh, La Junta has even has a tarantula-themed festival to capitalize on this interest, which uh, is a really good thing as well, getting people to hopefully come and see them and be responsible uh, around them, I mm-hmm. would imagine. We want to uh, be known as the tarantula capital of the world. Joe Ayler, the mayor, told Los Angeles Times, uh, we want to be the home where the tarantulas roam, which I, I like that, you know. So uh, during the mating season, thousands of these spiders, uh, commonly known as Texas brown tarantulas, uh, crawl across the town's fields and roads. And adults can grow on an average up to five inches long, which is about 12 to uh, 12 and a half centimeters, basically. They're a decent sized tarantula. They're not, you know, they're not giant, but they're a nice little mm. species. Uh, the, despite the fear that they strike into the hearts of many, most tarantulas are docile uh, and their bite, whilst painful, rarely causes any lasting damage. In fact, people pose more of a danger to the spiders, according to researchers who want to create foot wide tarantula tunnels to protect them from the, uh, the traffic, which the very fact that that is included in the article. I like the fact that they are yeah. pointing out that these are not dangerous animals and vehicles do far more damage to them that than they'll ever is, do to people. That is I a like, fresh, I like, fresh air, yeah. I like the inclusion of, according to researchers, no one could have figured that one out. Than they do to us. I, did they have to do that? And what well, your science isn't it? even like the simplest thing. You go, okay, yeah. right, let's rigorously test this. Someone got bitten by a spider and went, right, okay, that did that much damage. And then someone else dropped a boot and went, <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think the spider got more hurt <laughs> by the boot than science. I got hurt by the spider. Science. <laughs> let's, let's put that up in peer review, test it. But um, it, there's also another quote here from uh, Jackie Billet. Uh, a student at Colorado State University who studies the spiders. It's pretty upsetting to see them in uh, dead uh, in the road uh, from traffic. So they are, you know, people people are actively working to to make sure these spiders are safe. And the fact that they're trying to create spider tunnels or you know tarantula tunnels uh, so that they can cross. I imagine it's probably in the same vein as we have um, ones for toads and and hedgehogs and that sort of thing. You know, that will basically act as an underpass for these guys yep. to be able to go through. Hopefully those underpasses that don't then become, I don't know, homes for things like lizards or um, mm-hmm. small mammals that would basically sit there and get very fat on tarantulas as they come through. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> as much as, uh, as much as that would be part of the, uh, the natural habitat for these guys, it kind of makes a, uh, makes a spider buffet for a one, I don't know, particularly smart armadillo, I guess. For, for yeah. whatever would be hanging around that area. Um, but transport officials uh, have also said they were concerned about accidents caused by drivers having to stop and are considering putting up warning signs as well along the roads to uh, to make sure that the spiders 
uh, don't cause any accidents. So I'm I'm assuming in that vein, people are pulling over either to stop and look at the spiders and causing dangerous road accidents, or people are freaking out seeing a spider on the road and think it's going to somehow come and get them. Eat their car whole. (laughs) Well, the only reason I think that there might be some, some sort of thought to that is years ago, a group of girls who were sort of within a, the the friend circle that I was was in. This is in Australia. Saw a snake on the road, and thought that the snake was going to get into their car somehow whilst they were driving. So that mm. was their justification for running the snake over, mm. because somehow the snake was going to, I don't know, throw itself through the windscreen or something somehow. It's evidently it's, you've got better uh, friends it, now it, oh very much so yes <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like it's like driving through a ghost isn't it because then if you do that the ghost is then in your car well i think yeah mm. yeah yeah i mean and snakes it, are well known to run down cars as well they, i mean you they pretend to be wheels you think oh there's some free tires at the side of the road oh, there all uh wickedly fast yeah. animals i have a determined I have a quick, this is detracting from the article, but it's related to what you guys are talking about. I have a quick sort of, um, I guess it would be like a, an old, old wives tale or like a, a mm. folk folk tale that, oh, my uh, favorite. That they, that they often, that they often say in South Africa about, um, I think it was puff adders in particular. So obviously puff adders are well known for being very lazy, but they have a, they have a, a little folk tale out there that I was told. It's obviously, not true in what whatsoever but they basically say that if you if you bother a puff adder it will follow you to your car or if you run it over it will it will then attach itself to your car it will loop itself around the wheel arches or something and then as soon as you open the door it's right there and it bites you even though even though you might have driven because south africa (laughs) South Africa's big country even though you might have driven about six (laughs) six hours to another uh another state that it's it just wants to it's really annoyed with you and it just wants its vengeance yeah have you never seen them snakes are vengeful and they have long memories if they don't find (laughs) you again that day they'll 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 wait for you for the next few years then they're known to not give up yeah have you never seen have you never seen cape fear you know (laughs) or or the the better version of it the simpsons uh version of it where sideshow bob straps himself to the underside of their car you know that's exactly what the snake is doing. It's it's exactly. strapped itself to the underside yeah. of the car, going soon, <laughs> soon I will have vengeance, and then steps on rakes. And that that is why mm-hmm. puffheaders. Uh, so many people get bitten by puffheaders. It's because they're just vengeful and they attach themselves to your car. I mean, perfect sense. Not because absolutely they're lazy, makes you're perfect just sense. Absolutely trying to one. <laughs> it's nature um, one hundred and one. So we have digressed quite far yeah. from the article, <laughs> yeah. but before Gareth Sorry, brings yeah. it back, can we just say that uh, the snakes are perfectly normal sane and and beautiful animals that aren't going to hunt you down <laughs> no we don't want to no, spread no, the no. fear unless they're in b horror films and yeah yeah again then then all bets are off uh mm. but um yes yeah, so that that pretty much is is the article in itself but it does give a uh it does give hope to the fact that you know there's towns that want to capitalize off nature events people you know for people to come and see it as long as it's handled well and uh done responsibly and if anything if it raises awareness to making sure that these spiders uh are allowed to 
move throughout the town nice and safely, even if they're sort of caught up and shifted from one area to another so that they're not directly in the path of vehicles or anything. That's nothing but good. And yeah, gives me an idea of somewhere to go if I ever go to Colorado. So um, yeah, mm-hmm. if any, in fact, if anyone Actually, is in that, in, in that part of uh, Colorado and, and manages to go send us some pictures, it'd be really interesting to see. To uh, to see a, a tarantula. Or you can, or you can call Gareth. I've I've given you his number. Give him a call. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Just before you close out, I've I googled it because I've never seen one of these. These I haven't seen this species before. It's a stunning animal. But mm. there's a website called visitthehunter.net, uh, tarantula trek, and it'll it's it's quite informative. From what I've I've only skim read it because obviously I'm listening to you, but. It, it's quite informative and it, it it tells you quite a bit about them it's it's, it's a good website i recommend it hmm. well there you go if you're on your way to colorado go and check that out yep. right well let's go from colorado uh in the present time to argentina in the past in, in the late cretaceous but before wow. we did you want some 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 modern day some an extra bonus good news i'm well, surprised no okay. of you especially drew didn't cover it Oh well, Bolsonaro oh, oh, the I'm Amazon burner. To be, uh... Oh yeah, Bolsonaro's out. Mm, so, good yes, see that. And the guy that's, which is, infathomably good news because, mm-hmm. uh, because he was just a he was an, he was a terrorist in terms of, uh, in he's, terms of, the treatment of the Amazon and the natural world. Now, he's I don't a know much villain. about his he's successor. Evil. Oh, he's he's yeah he's a he's the mustache twirling. Um, bloke that just wishes he was vader or sauron but um in all seriousness i I don't know much about his successor i know that he is he's more kind of level-headed in some cases i know that he he's actually keener on the environment but i also realize he's not without his own batch of controversies himself so whether or not that he is good news remains to be seen but anyone at this point is better than bolsonaro I, i would say from the from the people who sound like they've supported this new guy, because I don't know much about him either, but I know a little bit about the people who supported him, and those people are, I would say, good people. Some other people in this country would disagree, but uh, genuinely, they're idiots. Well, he's um just quickly. He seems to be quite quite into like human rights, and also he stopped, or it didn't stop, but he prevented a lot of Amazon uh, deforestation during his time. And he mm-hmm. seems to, he, he, I think, I think he might have been president twice before, and each time, in including his campaign this time, he seems to be a little bit more environmentally friendly than he was the last time. So, I, as far as in my vague, vague, brief understanding, lack of understanding about him, he seems to be good news. But I, 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 I will um, withhold judgment until a later mm-hmm. date. But yeah, Bolsonaro is out, and that's great news. Oh well, that's good news. So, yes, let us indeed head to Lake Cretaceous, Argentina with our creature feature. It's the creature feature. Right, we are now into our creature feature, and Aaron is going to indeed take us back in time to Cretaceous, Argentina. So, well, what are we looking at, Aaron? Yeah, well, right from the outset, I'd like to say that this creature feature is dedicated to my partner, Atta who so loves this species that she tamed two in our ARC server a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and she named them Rini and Verde, which if you aren't bilingual, 
Greenies, obviously, a uh, reference to the English word green, and verde is the Spanish word for green because both of them were green. Green, yeah. <laughs> Alas, creative. <laughs> they were yeah, very uh, original names, but they were lost to the arc void after the server was closed. So rest in peace, Greenie and Verde. Your like will not be seen again, and their watch is over. But yeah, Tarno Taurus. So this is the flesh bull of Maastrichtian South America. Carno comes from carnis, which is Latin, uh, and like I say, means flesh. And Taurus is also Latin, that means bull. That's where they get that part of the name from. It is the best understood theropod of the Southern Hemisphere, thanks in large part to the near-perfect preservation afforded it by the La Colonia formation of the Chubut province in Argentina. In fact, its discovery in 1984 by an expedition led by Jose Bonaparte not only unearthed a near-complete specimen, having only the hind leg and the lower two-thirds of its tail destroyed, the specimen itself is articulated, meaning that the bones are all fully connected. And in addition to this fantastic skeletal discovery, the specimen was preserved with extensive skin impressions fossilized too, allowing us to build a really strong vision of what this Cretaceous monstrosity would have looked like. This discovery actually fueled a second expedition to the same area that yielded yet more skin patches, and it further inspired a life-size sculpture by Stephen and Sylvia Circus, which was displayed in the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County and was the first life restoration of a theropod with accurate skin representation. Now, guys, question for you both. If you're excavating mm -hmm. fossils mm. with the technology of the early 80s, what do you not want to go up against? Uh, iron stone, you know, like some sort of hard concretion around, around the fossils. Or... Magma, yeah, hostile tribes, yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, other other fossil hunters. Very, yeah, all yeah. very good uh, guesses. But Gareth, you hit the nail on the head straight off the bat. Because fun fact, this specimen that was, like I say, damn near perfect. It was particularly difficult to excavate because it was embedded, wedged, if you will, in a hematite concretion found on Poque Sastre, a farm near Bajada Moreno. Now, hematite concretions, like Gareth kind of alludes to, are, of course, made of solid rock and very difficult to work. So, like I say, in 1984, after all that difficulty, he finally managed to get this creature out. And a year later, in 1985, Jose Bonaparte published a note introducing the world to his newly dubbed Carnotaurus Sastre. In a lovely nod of appreciation, Jose Bonaparte honoured the owner of the farm on which the beast was found, Angel Sastre, by using his surname as the animal's specific name. Carnotaurus was, as I previously suggested, special, or perhaps we should say specialised. Despite the lighter build in terms of theropod blueprints, it was in fact on the larger side for its fellow Abelosaurids. It could grow to lengths of 8 metres and was weighing in at the 1.3 to 2.1 metric tonne mark. Whilst for the most part, the hindquarters were standard for basal ceratosaurs, the front end and the spine were particularly interesting. The skull was 59.6 centimetres long and proportionately much shorter and deeper than all other large carnivorous dinosaurs. The snout was broader and less tapered than other theropods with an upward curving jaw at particularly the lower jaw, but the crown of the affair were, of course, those two horns placed each above an eye. 
Now, these horns were made of the frontal bones of the animal's skull. They were thick and conical in form as they protruded obliquely from the animal's brow, and they measured a surprising 15 centimetres long. These things were solidly built, and to make matters more interesting, in 1990, Bonaparte suggested that these horns were the support for much larger keratinous sheaths, giving the animal an even longer armament. Later studies suggest that this was only partially correct, for the bone horns were indeed support for a larger keratin covering, but these sheaths weren't all that much bigger than the already impressive bone horns themselves, so not quite like massive spikes that were being alluded to before. But what were these horns used for? Despite several interpretations and theories put forward, it's actually still relatively unclear. Researchers have explored them as courtship adornments, markers for species recognition, weapons for fighting conspecifics, or indeed aiding in the killing of prey. Now, rutting seems to be a more popular route to explore in regards to the horns, if rutting it can be called. It was suggested that rapid, heavy blows head-to-head -head like rams were the prehistoric WWE of the Carnotaurus world. It's also been suggested that that thick, muscular neck of theirs lends credence to this theory. But similarly, slower, more push-style wrestling of some deer species may have been more likely, with the horns acting as shock absorbers to prevent brain damage, and that again, that thick neck being used to protect spinal injury. Another option, of course, is lecking in the kind of manner that giraffes do by swinging the head for the horns to uh, make contact with their adversaries' bodies, with the opponent, of course, having that thick muscular neck to protect them from excessive injury themselves. It's still very much up for debate, but I personally don't really buy the hunting prey theory. I don't know what you guys would think of it, but for one thing, no other horn in the animal kingdom is known to be used as a hunting weapon at present. And for another thing, these animals like the eight. Apart very from a prey. hunting horn. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Quick word there. Right in there. You got oh. in there. Yeah. Oh. That was I, I agree with you. Having the ability to kind of run at the speeds these guys would have done and lower their head into a position like that seems really unlikely to me. As they then run into a wall or something. Well, they're not going to see where they're going, <laughs> are they? Just slam into some <laughs> semi aquatic tree. Not if it's like Ark and they just warp themselves through the walls. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, that's true, true actually. Yeah. It's true. They glitch through. That game is so broken. Oh, look, yeah. he's glitching. <laughs> I love that game, but yeah. I hate that game as well. <laughs> he, he loves and loves hates and the hates game it. as he loves and hates himself. <laughs> yes, it is the golem of games. Um, <laughs> I just hate the game, Aaron. I don't hate you. <laughs> I hate all myself. <laughs> Hate the game, not the player, or the hate the player, not the game. One of the two. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, yeah, I don't think that's what they're using it for. Although personally, I, in in my mind, the only thing I've got going around is the uh, is the Carnotaurus mating display from Prehistoric Planet. Mm -hmm. That's just yeah, stuck well, in my head constantly uh, when you're talking about them. I've seen some videos. This is this week you on YouTube of, of them putting it to some really cheesy like eighties love like ballads, and it is. I'm gonna check that out. Is everything that you imagine it to be? A very <laughs> memeable dinosaur. Everything I want it to be. I hope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, moving on. The teeth were also unique among the abelisaurids. Whilst most species sported shorter dental weaponry. The Carnotaurus had longer, more slender gnashes for feasting. The vertebrae are, again, 
a unique identifying feature in this species presenting us once more with just how specialized this animal had become. The 10 cervical vertebrae, for example, those that are in the neck, they're set in a very straight posture, unlike the more S-curve shaped neck of other theropods. It was also, as I kind of said already, disproportionately wide, particularly towards the base of the neck. These guys had a really thick, very muscular neck on them. Also, if anyone is under the false pretense that the forelimbs of the Tyrannosaurus rex are comically small and useless, the Carnotaurus, <laughs> yeah. they have news for you. Because <laughs> these arms... Hold so... my beer, I believe, yeah, would be my... the... Uh, or, the or don't in the Carnotaurus's case. <laughs> yeah, the Carnotaurus. yeah. <laughs> Try and hold my beer. Oh, no, you've spilled <laughs> <laughs> Oh, damn, I dropped it. Yeah, so they were ridiculously small and proportionally smaller than all other carnivorous theropods. They also lacked integral bone structures. For example, the carpalia of the hand. And what this means is that their fingers were actually articulated from its forearm directly, which is a really surreal thought if you apply that kind of those logistics and project that onto your own anatomy. Just imagine that your fingers of which there are only four, just directly attached to your your lower arm and uh, just kind of waggle him from there. <laughs> uh, further to the assumed uselessness of Carnotaurus arms, a 2009 study suggests that the nerve fibers responsible for stimulus transmission were actually significantly reduced, which essentially renders these arms vestigial. They're not really sounding that useful right now, are they? Little floppy chicken dippers. Yeah. Well, <laughs> did they have a use? Gareth's already alluded to one theory, but another theory suggests that they may have been used to kind of limply Slap. grasp onto Slap. their mates. Yeah, just <laughs> limp slaps. <laughs> oh, it's like Ace Ventura when he gets the darts in his arms and he's throwing his arms around. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that is like just that. a glorious image of a theropod doing that in my head now that has replaced the normal Slapping. monkey with symbols up there. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they think that they might have used them to kind of limply hold on to their mate during court, courtship. But another theory, as I say, Gareth Gareth's already alluded to it. That's that's a really that's a really obviously stimulating thought as well to be held on to limply. <laughs> <laughs> hold me limply. Hold me limply. <laughs> For all its flaws, this creature feature has been at least graphic. Um <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's been made infamous now by Prehistoric Planet, but the arm waggling theory proposed by John Conway and Darren Nash, it basically suggests that these arms may have been very brightly coloured on, on the inner side. And this coloration was put to use in unison with the arms anchoring in a ball and socket joint. And that basically allowed them to manipulate the limbs in wonderfully flexible movements in a sort of mating dance. Now, as beautiful and indeed comical as this theory may have appeared, especially in Attenborough's prehistoric planet, it is vital that I point out that this is based entirely on speculation alone. Now, if we could circle back to that all-important skin discovery for a moment, Carnotaurus, as I say, was the first theropod to be found with a healthy amount of preserved skin impressions. Now, they originate from the lower jaw, the front of the neck, the shoulder girdle, the rib cage, and the anterior part of the tail from which the larger skin patch is known. There was a large area of the skull preserved with skin, 
but it wasn't recognized for what it was at the time. And unfortunately, it got destroyed in excavation, probably by very frustrated paleontologists trying to get it out of hematite concretion with lots that's of swearing, man, I imagine. That's a man living with regrets now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's very easy to accidentally destroy a fossil. Oh, of course you... it is, yeah. 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 Speaking of someone who's accidentally done that. And, and that's just accident, accidental when you're enjoying kind of like a jolly out on, on, on the beach. This is in a very solid rock um, with very primitive, well, by today's standards, tools, because these tools are what, getting on for almost 40 years old. So, yeah. But fortunately, uh, there is enough of the skin patches and the indentations on the fossilized bones that they leave to infer their appearance to a, a certain degree. We think that the skin on the face of the Carnotaurus consisted of flat scales. Kind of imagine the scales that are on a crocodile. And the top of the snout probably sported a, a rough pad that was adorned with multiple small horns. And scales around the eye appear to be bigger than the scales on the rest of the face. Now, the skin along the body would have been a puzzle of polygonal, non-overlapping scales forming a mosaic-like arrangement in the skin, with each scale being around 5 to 12 millimeter in diameter, so not very big at all. They were also divided by thin grooves that ran parallel to each other. The scale pattern that was found on the body in this way would have differed from that of the face, where the scales were arranged much more irregularly. Now, we have no evidence of feathers in this species, though there is evidence of larger structures, such as bumps and adornments, standing about five centimetres high, and the same again in diameter, spaced irregularly along the neck, back and tail. Up until last year, these were thought to be set in rows that, rep were, that were represented as such in paleo art of, of all kinds, paintings, toys, models, uh, life reconstructions. But as I say, last year this changed when a study was published suggesting that these uh, arrangements were far more irregular than, than set in discrete rows. The jaw anatomy of Carnotaurus is suggestive of quick snapping bites, not particularly powerful ones. And this further implies that the prey would likely have been smaller species, such as the rodent and squirrel-like mammals prevalent at the time. But we'll get on to this in a minute. The articulation of the skull and jaw seems to suggest a flexibility similar to that of snakes, which also kind of implies a jaw elasticity that would allow for swallowing prey whole, potentially. A feat only achievable if such a theropod was hunting prey much smaller than it. However, the skull is built to withstand the tugging action of larger prey trying to escape, or indeed tough hide being ripped and pulled at. And this conversely implies a prey palette of much larger animals, Theories suggest large prey predation also draw parallels to modern day animals such as the Komodo dragon, which is known for, you know, making lacerating bites against things like bovid species. So there's evidence mm -hmm. to, to suggest here that this is a predator that could both ambush small prey, season them for basically swallowing whole, and also chase down larger stock whilst making quick slashing bites that would injure, slow, and eventually kill possibly even some sauropod species. And looking at modern predators today, who often do partake in prey of various sizes, as well as a little bit of scavenging here and there from carcasses, it's likely that a variety of food sources were harvested here by the Carnotaurus too. As to what was living in the same time and place as the Carnotaurus, perhaps we can take an idea for prey from their habitat. 
Now, as previously mentioned, the environment was semi-aquatic, uh, not to the same degree as perhaps Spinosaurus aegypticus, for example, but the Carnotaurus would have certainly frequented estuaries, coastal plains, and tidal flats. And this is supported by the type of flora or plant life that has been found in, in the area where these guys have been discovered. Here, the Carnotaurus would have shared the realm with ceratodontid lungfish, crocodilomorphs, dinosaurs, lizards, plesiosaurs, snakes, and turtles, with those tall, slender teeth of Carnotaurus. They would be well employed in impaling the lungfish. That, uh, they may have made a, a tasty morsel for these guys. In terms of dinosaurs, there were sauropods, but they're both titanosaurid members, so they would have been huge. However, they may well have had young and adolescents in their populations that would have filled the large prey role. And as I suggested before, the mammals, those smaller critters resembling primitive rodents and screws, they would have made a great stand-in for the smaller prey roles that would have been available to them. So whilst there is evidence for different hunting techniques, there's also the prey. So it, it does leave it very open and very unclear as to what they specifically would have hunted. But like I say, I, I would I would theorize that they probably took took a little bit of everything. They probably scavenged, they probably ate small prey. Their large prey probably would have been these younger titanosaurid species. I don't think right now that you can kind of pinpoint. So until there's more information available from no. further studies, uh, we don't know exactly what they what they ate. Now, guys, would you humor me for a second and step in to the pop culture corner? Yeah, hang on. Yeah. There we go. Right, I'm in the corner. Cool. Uh, now, I've already alluded to the great prehistoric documentary featuring David Attenborough, but let me test your nerd knowledge somewhat and ask what Carnotaurus and the Indominus Rex from Jurassic World have in common. Eh. <laughs> Did I need to use a buzzer? I just no, I found one. Over if you found one, you found one. You pressed it. It's your buzzer. So, in the original Lost World book, uh, Carnotaurus could uh, uh, change yeah. color, and basically, it was hybridized with a chameleon. So it basically mm -hmm. had the, the the same color changing capabilities that a chameleon does. Yeah, it yes. did that in the um, the arcade game as well, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it yeah. did. Yeah. Mm. Well done. That is uh that is that's absolutely correct. It was do not quote the deep law which I was there when it was written. <laughs> Amazing uh reference there. I was there. I was there, there two thousand years ago. <laughs> the, this, I mean, it's the not really I was gonna man say, failed. There's there's three very nerdy people. It, you know, it's <laughs> Yeah, the, but the chances are that I think both of us probably knew that answer. A lot of the time, people, a lot of the time, people don't know the the Jurassic Park book canon. If there is, so I am, I'm kind of with Drew with at least in terms of Fallen Kingdom and Dominion. Um, the message of Jurassic Park is lost. However. I know that you two don't agree with me on this, but I do defend Jurassic World. I know it's pretty much a cookie-cutter copy of Jurassic Park with a little bit more annoyingly Marvel-esque kind of sensibilities, I, which I, I don't like, like. Sorry, I, I do actually quite like Jurassic World as, a, um, as an example of what not to do on a Code Red or how... <laughs> 
<laughs> the lions are out. Quick, get the jaguar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, yeah, get don't don't set any alarms off or you know put anyone <laughs> inside into a building or anything. Just send, yeah, send some other animals at it. <laughs> yeah, we need we need more teeth. Yeah, as, but well, as a film, I quite I, I think it's quite fun. Well, I think I... if you go for the most logical option, if you say we need more teeth, then you've got to send something like a, a land snail. They've got over yeah. four thousand teeth. You know, the, yeah. the I mean, it's going to take a while, yes. but uh, the logic is perfect. Yeah, mm. I I like that sort logic of. actually. No, I um I find that Jurassic World is the last movie where there is some sort of a message underlying. Um, there are things I don't like about it, obviously, but it is as controversial as it is to say this around the Jurassic Park movie fans. It's actually closer to the novel in a lot of ways than the other films were. But this is we're digressing, which is what we do quite a bit. Uh, so back on subject, here's what we do. What we do. <laughs> they did feature in the film canon, albeit rather briefly and without kind of the changing colour ability that the book canon counterpart had, because like Gareth has said, quite rightly, the Indominus Rex kind of took that role. Um, but the animal is in question is often referred to Toro and you, you, you'll you see him, he's got a broken left horn and a nasty scar on uh, the right side of his snout. It's not the most accurate looking Carnotaurus model, I think we can all agree, but um, oh, it, it is it is there. But yeah, there it is, Carnotaurus in all its bullish, fleshy, bony, spiky, freakish glory. An animal that I wasn't all that fussed by until my partner reared two in a video game. <laughs> nice, well, it's a good reason as any. Exactly. If Ark had any strengths, it got, got me interested in a few animals I wasn't interested in originally. But there we go. The, I suppose the less, the less said about that, the better, because we could go on. <laughs> then we will go on we, about We could things. digress more. <laughs> <laughs> right well let's uh come back to the modern day and and go and look through the what i think should be a definitely a video game our mailbag it should be <laughs> multiple levels of of just emails dropping in out of nowhere i don't know how that would work but let's what like space invaders this is what yeah yeah or, yeah okay. let's go with that tetris yeah, we, people, we shoot them we have yeah. to stack it perfectly. <laughs> dee, 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 dee. Oh, demonetization. Yeah. I'm kidding. We don't get any money for this. <laughs> anyway, oh, that, let's that go to our mailbag, shall we? <laughs> Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, so we are now into our mailbag. No one's turned it into a video game yet, which is sad. But uh, maybe one day. Who knows? Game developers, get on turning our mailbag into a into a video game. Yeah, really lucrative. Oh yeah. You know, we're giving <laughs> people the uh get in on the ground level, you know, get in while it's it's fresh. Anyway, talking about fresh uh things, uh, we we asked you last week, what is your favorite zoo uh, and why? So, the responses we've got, um we've got one from Shelley Kendall. She said uh, Oasis Wildlife Park in Fortaventura. The enclosures are huge. The keepers are very friendly and helpful, and the animals reflect this. Either of you two been into that one? Nope. No. So yeah, I, that's that's one of those places in the Canary Islands I wouldn't mind going. Went to Laura Park on Tenerife, but not made it to Forta. 
Steve Trim has said uh, it was Bristol because of the amazing Invert House. And yeah, I mean, that's hands down. It was one of the best Invert collections in the country. Mm. Mm. Um, sad to see that one go, but I'm sure whatever replaces it at the Wild Place will um, will be equally as good. Yeah, I believe they're just uh, calling Wild Place Bristol Zoo. Are they? Are they changing the name just to be Bristol Zoo again? I'm not cool. sure. I don't. I don't I'm not sure. Either is, way, it is at the moment called list. Bristol Zoo's Wild Places Project or something, isn't it? Yeah. At yeah, the moment. So, yeah. So yeah, maybe. Either way, uh, it's basically the same thing. Um, and then uh, David Thomas has put Chester Zoo. They take native species conservation seriously uh, as well as abroad, which is very true. They've got quite a lot of active conservation stuff going on abroad and in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah mm. what we didn't go over is um what are our favorite zoos well we could do that now yeah well why not i mean this is a perfect place for it um it's... drew do you want to do you want to start yeah so i think it's a relatively easy one to answer despite the fact that i have lots and lots and lots of favorites uh, or lots of lots of zoos i like rather so my favorite zoo because it was the zoo that i think surprised me most and one of the ones that i enjoyed the most as i was walking around is uh, cotswolds wildlife park um mm. and it's mm. mainly because i wasn't or, i mean i wasn't expecting it to be bad but i wasn't expecting that much i suppose and ended up it ended up blowing me away i was just like oh, actually this is this is incredible this is a little gem that i've just discovered for myself and yeah i love cotswolds it's a beautiful little zoo yeah, I say little. Yeah. It's got it's got rhino and uh, and like cloud leopards and lions and all sorts in it. But um, yeah, <laughs> I've not been to Cotswolds yet. But no, one of the things I noticed that they do very well from like pictures and stuff is that they're planting the horticultural side of it. Mm-hmm. They plant things in such a way that it grows in and out of the enclosures, which draws your eye in, and it almost. It makes you boring. What's the word? Immersive. The habitat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Immersive. That's the word. Thank you. Yeah. I from the photos that I've seen, they do particularly well. Hmm. Yeah. Good too. Where's your zoo then that you're uh, wanting to go with, Aaron? I actually have found this one difficult because my favorite zoo could be a very different zoo today than it was when I visited because there's been a change of management since. But back in 2014 2015 i visited highlands wildlife park and i was blown away by that place um so i suppose now that's almost 10 years ago uh and i know that they've had a management change uh so i would i would say that's probably a nostalgic view now a lot of the time what i find is that i like particular enclosures or particular aspects of certain places i have a lot of love for Longley and what was Bristol Zoo mm-hmm. because of visiting with my mum and my dad. But at the same time, Nolsey Safari Park have my, and this is not a biased opinion at all, but they have my favourite tiger enclosure of all the zoos I've visited, certainly in the UK and certainly the ones I've visited in Europe too. That tiger enclosure and their bush dog enclosure too are fantastic. <laughs> Fair enough. And you? And you? Well, my thoughts. I'm going to be one of those those people who uh, who likes Chester. It was uh, for a good long while my local collection that I would go to mm-hmm. quite often. It's got lots of really nice invertebrate and reptile and fish 
exhibits, which are usually the, the sort of exhibits I tend to go to, and bird stuff as well. Lots and lots of uh, really nice bird enclosures. And just like you're saying, well-planted uh, that sort of draw you in and, and you know, mm. keep you looking and, and guessing. I, it's it's going to have to be a draw between that. I quite like painting as well um, because of their bird and invert collections as well, uh, as well as their reptiles. One sort of mention that sneaks in there as well is Whipsnade, in mm. my mind. Not so much... For the large animal stuff, because yes, all right, you know, I'll go and I'll go and look at things like that, especially because they've got hippo. But I can distinctly remember their exhibits that had fish, invertebrates, and even some amphibians and reptiles mixed in. So you had a whole ecosystem in an enclosure. It was a brand new exhibit building that they had, and it's still it's still there, I would imagine. So yeah, I don't really have one particular zoo it's but if i had to give one answer of a zoo that i had to go to and that's the only zoo i could go to i'm probably going to go with chester mm. quick question gareth mm -hmm. you're saying chester was uh local to you once is there anywhere that isn't there wasn't ever local <laughs> to you <laughs> um uh, yeah well, some places i suppose yeah yeah, yeah. there's okay. there's a few but no, no, that was genuinely like a zoo that was quite close all, all the time, you know, uh, for, well, it still is. It's whenever I go and visit my parents, basically. Mm. Okay, Drew, what question have we got from the listeners this week? So the question that we have this week is from Josh Dean, who asked, what Lord of the Rings or Star Wars creature would you bring to life? Oh. oh. Mm -hmm. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll jump in there first. I've got... Mm -hmm. uh, Two thoughts. I'll go for one for each. I'd love a fell beast mm -hmm. from Lord of the Rings from a practical just getting around point of view. They seem like a, a great idea. Are you, are you um, assuming that they're tame? Terrify your enemies. Well, I mean, the Nazgul are flying them, so I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm going to go with that as there's a, a thought. There's a few differences between no? a, a Nazgul and yourself, I would say. Also, just to be clear, Fell Beast is not the actual name of of the creature. Yeah, all right. That's I'm going just a for the. That was I'm given to it by the uh, uh -huh. the games. Okay, I'm going with the Peter Jackson interpretation of what they look like. Sure, because they also yeah. differ quite a bit in the books, and don't have a specific name or what. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I'll have I'll have one of those for getting around. Cut out petrol. I'll have one of those. Eat the uh, eat the neighbors. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> perch on the roof of the house it can wake the neighbors up with sort of a terrifying Screech. squeal <laughs> make all the local uh cats and dogs run a mile but uh as for star wars creatures do you know what i'm gonna go for another flying based creature actually they're uh they're called uh a thranta i think it is yeah they're basically like a sky whale sort of one yeah you see they they appear in most of the sort of sort of outer like Star Wars literature and all of that. Although there, I think there is one in Attack of the Clones on Kamino. You see someone riding one as it just sort of comes out of the way. That's right, yeah. As it sort of flies a bit. So yeah, it, yeah. again, it's the thought of having, you know, sort of a semi-submersible but also flying creature as well. I'm mm. going practical here, you know, getting myself around. I mean, I don't know where I'm going to put a Thranta. They're quite big, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's what I'm going with. What what have you guys got? Well, I think I think my answer is kind of obvious. 
uh, really. Is it? Um, tiger. Tiger. <laughs> oh, space may- tiger. Maybe not so obvious. Space, space tiger. tiger. Yeah, well, they were introduced. Tiger. Yeah, <laughs> the space tiger was introduced in uh, spoilers, but the um, Tales of the Jedi wasn't. Oh, uh, yeah. If you've watched that, yeah. Um, anyway, no. If it's from Star Wars, I mean, there's a lot of animals like tauntons and and rancors, but I think the option at the top of my list would be banthers. You just really want like that banther. blue milk, don't you? You just want. You just, <laughs> just want mammoths. Is that yeah, what you're after? <laughs> well, funnily enough, yeah, because my Lord of the Rings uh, one, I was oh, thinking you're going about for, dragons, you're going but then I remembered that the the Mimikil, Yeah, I was thinking about dragons, but like I say, the problem with Tolkien's dragons is that they're, they're it's not that they're sentient; it's that they're inher- No, it's not that they're intelligent. You can have a good conversation with Smaug, but they're inherently bad because they they've been twisted from another life form into dragons by Morgoth. I, I suppose if you want to go dragon, then you would. I, I would go Peter Jackson's um, uh, Hellhawks, the uh, the Nazgul flying mounts. But but yeah, I think just to keep it easy, Bantha and Mumakil, especially Mumakil, M- massive I mean, elephant, like a elephant the size of the Empire State Building. With it's not really <laughs> that big, by the way. With four tusks, that, that would be. You're awesome. having the full tower on the back as well. Like the war yeah, I'd tower do, thing. I'd, I'd do it up like a really kind of lavish luxury version of how I'd do a van up. <laughs> Is it screw it? Just put put a Ford Transit on top of the Moomakill. No, no, a Volkswagen Crafter on top of the Moomakill. And that would be how I, uh, that, that'd be a great way to live. I'm just imagining a very low budget version of Lord of the Rings now with your <laughs> army of. Four transits. Ba- <laughs> bands on the back of them. <laughs> Each with like several surfboards on racks on top of that. Yep. Solar panels. The all of the armies that, that come out of these bands, the they're all system. what tradesmen or something, you know. <laughs> Rock up to the Battle of Pelinophios. Anyone want a flapjack? I've got the hob on. Flapjack <laughs> pancake, I meant. I meant a pancake. I would say bring us back to sanity, Drew, but I have a feeling that it may not get any any better. I, I'm interested mm. to know what Drew's going to say on this one. I'm going to take a guess at giant <laughs> eagles. No, oh, of course, no. Gwyer and Frondor. And Frondor. No, no? no. Frondor. Oh, I can never. I'm not. I'm not going. I'm not going giant eagles. Uh, also, Gareth, the the platform on the back of the elephant. Uh, it's it's called a howder, actually. Uh, I don't know why I'm doing that voice. I'm doing an impression of myself, clearly. Um, <laughs> Is so, is it made by Volkswagen? It's the same name as the as the platforms they used to put on elephants, I, I believe. Okay, um, I think, so. I, think uh, that, I think you I, might be right. About IRL. That. I'm not going to double check now. But um, no, so from Lord of the Rings, the creature that I would bring back easily would be Ents. Didn't have to think about it. I would Ents. bring back. Oh. I would bring back nature's oh. nature's wrath. I uh, thought you. I thought we were talking animals. Like accidentally the... coming across one of those. Say that again, sorry. I thought you were me. I thought we were going for like proper animal things. Oh, I see. Well, because I suppose yeah. they're sort of sentient, aren't they? And they, they can walk they're, around. But they're I'm, another race, aren't they? Well, that's what I'm going with. And call me a call no, me an, enough, an, an racist we... if you like. But I'm bringing them back. <laughs> you <laughs> end I'm, I'm inviting the. I'm inviting them in, despite I'm, despite I'm, calling I, creatures. But I yeah, support you. Nature's wrath is is what I'd like to to bring back, and probably that would hopefully do some good. As for be Star a Wars, lot of people murdered. As for Star Wars, it's, I have barely any opinion. So what I'm just going to throw out there for you guys, as I've already gone for a sentient being anyway, Jar Jar. I'll just bring him straight in. 
<laughs> you having the gun to see from, all of you. Love to see you piggybacking on Charger <laughs> All the Gungans, all of them. Hang on, wait. If you're if you're somehow introducing Ents into a, a wooded sort of forested area, and then Gungans as well, aren't the Gungans going to get killed by the Ents? No, they'll be in the swamp. They'll be. Um... We saw hate in the ends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they yeah. think they so smart. They think their brains so big. I mean, if it turns into all that war between ants and gungans, then so be it. I can, I can just so see that. It. I'm going for a lovely walk out in the countryside. Just, just watch out. You know, they're having yeah. that that ant gungan civil war at the moment. Yeah. But anyway, but particularly Jar Jar, he would be. Uh, I mean, he wouldn't be it. I wouldn't keep him anywhere near me. He would just be out there, and I'd know he was out there, and that he's would bring joy, release a lot of joy to me, <laughs> just knowing that he's around somewhere, and someone's really, really annoyed. Some people just want to watch. Uh, of well, all the things, because yeah, I'm, imag- I'm imagining that I've been bro- given, bro- I've been given the power. Someone's just given me the power to bring something from Star Wars to life, and I, I can just feel the anger of all of the. All of the Star Wars nerds out there going, this guy was given the power and he brought <laughs> brought Jar Jar. I Bring me a lot of joy. You anarchist, you strong. Yeah. Okay. Oh dear. I mean, at least you didn't waste it and go, you know what I'd like to have? I'd like to have ducks. Because in Star Wars canon, oh, the oh, ducks are a real thing. Yeah. They've just got four legs. Drew, this this will be too. I think this will be too far outside Star Wars for you. But uh, mm. Gareth, what what about those those the pod of whales that can they can space whales. hijack the hyperspace lanes and go the speed of light? Yeah, I'm I'm Madness. okay with space whales. Mad, that is mad, absolutely <laughs> mad. Yes. What is that? Who thought of that? Speed of light, space whales. I love it. I mean, universe yeah. of endless possibilities. I'm sure, but that good question. That, that is insane. I liked that question. Yeah, good question. Thank you, Josh. Thank you very much, yes. Josh. Can I ask you guys a question? If you could pick a franchise from which there is an animal that you would bring bring into real life, what franchise would you go for? My my first immediate sort of thought is um, I don't think it'd be the one I I chose upon sort of actually thinking about it and on reflection. But I've just I I can't get the image of Falcor out of my head. <laughs> uh, and have a have some falcors around because it, I mean it's basically a nice dog dragon, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, the luck dragon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe the Jurassic Park franchise. You know, some of those. But they are real. They're not well. They're the not dinosaurs. Yeah, they're, they're real though. Uh, all right, well, they're not real, but they're bent versions of real things. Very close to what Drew's just suggested. Let's go with uh, with like Dark Crystal. Ooh. There's some. Twisted yeah, monster okay. things in there. Will you bring the Skeksis into <laughs> <Okay>. this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why not? You know, let's have some nightmare fuel roaming around. <laughs> Do you know what? We've, that's the first mention I think we've ever had of Dark Crystal in this whole podcast. And that is a, that's a travesty. Absolute it is. Travesty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So moving on from questions that we've been sent and, uh, what animals and what sort of bizarre things we'd have going on if we had those sort of powers. Um, this week's mm-hmm. question that we have for you is what is your favorite dinosaur from the country that you live in? There are some truly amazing stuff from places like Argentina that uh, Aaron was just talking about with Carnotaurus. Even right here in the UK, we've got some really 
quite standalone different dinosaurs. Uh, we'll even open it up to uh, non-dinosaur reptiles at the same time, so pterosaurs and, uh, and marine reptiles to uh, to make it work quite nicely. So keep a lookout on social media for for that and for all the other questions that we ask you guys. Add your answers and we'll bring them up. So if you want to get in contact with us, you can obviously do that through our social media pages, through our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Our handle is at NH Cupboard for Twitter. Uh, we're also on TikTok as well. And we have our fantastic T-Mill uh, shop as well. But you can also get in contact with us as well in the traditional manner through an electronic mail, as they call it. Uh, our email address is... Do they still do this? I believe so, yeah. No, I, I've I've not heard anything different. You can um, you can get on contact with us. Our email address is uh, thenathistorycupboard at gmail.com, where, like I say, you can send all sorts of different things to us. Um, please don't send unsolicited spider pictures. We don't need that. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be IDing spider pictures for everyone. But wow. that just leaves me. <laughs> You're supposed to provide a service. Fine, send me all your unsolicited spider pictures. <laughs> the most blurry ones, the better. You know, that's you, I love. I love you random black than dot. the conservative government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm more trustworthy. Um, True. Yeah. <laughs> so, this, oh god. Before you close down. Yes. Just <laughs> I want to just say close down. He's not just, a robot. <laughs> Before you shut down, <laughs> overwhelmed by all this nonsense that we we keep interrupting you with. On a serious note, can I drag it back to the social media a second? Drag it back. Drag it back. Twitter is now doing this. You probably all have heard this, but they're doing this new blue tick scheme where you pay nine dollars a month. Um, Elon Musk hasn't got enough money. No. Yeah, the poor uh, fellow. Money needs, needs more money. money to keep money company. You know. We have never had the blue tick, but we are real. This is the real natural history cover podcast. We're not. No one would want to impersonate us. <laughs> no, we're not about to pay that money for a little blue tick that we've never had before. You just, we are the guys as we have been for the last two seasons. Drew has yeah. <laughs> put out a post. Well, it by the time this comes out, it would it would have been up for a week of a nice blue tick, <laughs> and we're going to work on a way official one of doing an official natural history covered podcast blue tick on our on our logo somewhere, so you know it's us. <laughs> but please continue to follow us because we're probably going to be hidden by the algorithm because we're not paying Musk to line his pocket with with more dollar. So uh, there oh. it is. So there you go. You can look out for our official, unofficial blue tick, which I think is better. So that leaves me just to say a big thank you to my two co-hosts. Big thank you, uh, Drew. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you, Professor. Thank you for the session again. Well, it's, what, what can I say? I've got no choice, <laughs> but thanks anyway. <laughs> and a uh, big thank you, Aaron. Uh, it's, it's, it's great to be here with the podcast finding us, penetrating us. Bringing the galaxy together. Not a good enough you, you reason to use the word penetrate, in my thought, but <laughs> fair enough. And that just leaves me to say a big thank you to you at home for listening. And we will see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. You know, I'm something of a big blue tick myself. I like <laughs> to waggle my tiny arms around. <laughs> <laughs>